everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. We had some excitement in my neighborhood the other day. See, we've got these neighbors that, well... We don't know that they're meth dealers. They could just be meth enthusiasts. Heck, they could just be easily distracted inventors who are garbage collectors who suffer from insomnia and have a lot of like-minded friends who like to visit them at odd hours. None of my business, but their behavior does invite certain speculation. Anyway, their shed spontaneously combusted yesterday, which, I must admit, does little to dispel my suspicions, especially because the smoke that it gave off had a distinctly non-wood aroma to it. But, I don't know, maybe they were just making tire jerky or something. Anyway, a couple of fire trucks showed up to put out the fire, and there were firemen that I was watching over the back fence, and it was very exciting. Pleased to report, A respectable percentage of the firemen had pretty good fireman mustaches, so that was comforting. Oh, also they put the fire out, and I'm pretty sure nobody got hurt, so that's good. But you guys didn't tune into this show to listen to my folksy anecdotes about my picturesque neighborhood. You came here to hear about a comic book. So, without any further ado... Let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is from James Satter, and he sent it in quite a while ago, and I had been saving it until we got to the Squadron Supreme storyline, but when we did, I forgot that I had it. So, sorry about that, James. Anyway, Nighthawk is in another team with Nuke and Power Princess. They call themselves Squadron Supreme, And here is their synopsis. I mean, this isn't their synopsis. Their synopsis was like a month and a half ago or something. Two months ago? What is time even? But uh, like I said, I I goofed that up. Anyway, thanks, James. Defenders number 119. May 1983. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Written by Stephen Grant. Drotted by Sal Buscema, inked by Jack Abel, lettered by Diverse Hands, drotted by George Russos, edited by Al Milgram, and according to the credits, J.M. DeMatteis gave invaluable assistance of an unspecified nature. Good for him. Defensive lineup. Doctor Strange. Valkyrie. Hellcat. The Incredible Hulk, Nighthawk, Clea, and Namor the Submariner. Previously in the Defenders. 
An indeterminate but seemingly very significant amount of comic book time ago, Doctor Strange ran afoul of an alien science jerk who called himself Yandroth, the Scientist Supreme. Yandroth had nonsense science powers that rivaled Steve's nonsense magic powers. He tried to do some evil science stuff and Steve thwarted him. Then Yandroth got run over by a truck and died. Hooray! Only after he died, Yandroth's ghost turned on a doomsday robot called the Omegatron that wanted to blow up the universe. Steve mystically summoned his acquaintances Namor and the Hulk, and respectively cajoled and gaslit them into forming a non-team with him to help him turn off Yandroth's robot. And so the Defenders were born! Hooray! A while later, the robot turned itself back on, so Valkyrie cut off its head. Hooray! A while after that, the robot almost got turned on again when a veterinarian used some magic powers to get better at tennis and fight crime. But Nighthawk let the veterinarian beat him up, which kept the robot from activating or something, I think. Hooray! Anyway, Yandra sucks and being dead hasn't stopped him from being a planet-threatening jerk. Speaking of dead jerks, ever since billionaire duel bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, aka Nighthawk, died, his former employee Luann Bloom has had a vendetta against our titular non-team. Luann blamed the defenders for Kyle's death and began seeking evidence of their malfeasance. She arranged to meet with a mysterious stranger who claimed to have some information for her, but was shocked when her anonymous informant turned out to be the elf with a gun known as Elf with a gun. The diminutive death dealer drove Luann through the rural south and several weirdo dimensions in his flying Model T Ford. Eventually, the mismatched motorists arrived at a giant space castle where a mustachioed man in a suit with a bolo tie told Luann that he represented a tribunal and asked her to deliver her report. When Luann expressed confusion at this request, the mustache man strongly implied that Luann was a robot and further suggested that she might be malfunctioning. Gadzooks! Why would this mustache man think Luann was a broken robot? Is Yandroth's ghost back on his bullshit again? And why is Nighthawk listed in the defensive lineup if he's still dead? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Because Luann is a broken robot? Not currently, but he was at some unspecified point in the past, and because the bulk of this issue is a flashback to a previously untold story that took place a little over 50 issues ago. Luann Bloom stands in front of a bunch of huge columns, atop which stand the mysterious bolo tie-wearing mustache man and a few other shadowy figures, which apparently make up the tribunal he mentioned earlier. Luann is like, Wait, what's this about me being a robot? Mr. Mustache is like, Shut up, robot, and give us your report on the Defenders. Luann is like, Wuh-huh? Mr. Mustache is like, Elf with a gun, show the robot that it's a robot. Elf with a gun is like, Okie dokie. He takes off Luann's face and reveals that beneath it is a robot face. Luann is like, Well, shit, I guess I'm a robot. Beep boop. Mustache Man is like, yup, now make with the report already. 
projector beams shoot out of the Luan bot's eyes, and she gives the tribunal a PowerPoint presentation about the Defenders. As the images from the Defenders' past adventures are displayed, Luan is like, Uh, yeah, so, see, there's this team called the Defenders, only they always say they're not a team, even though they are a team. And one time they fought the devil and his buddies, the devil, the devil, and the devil. And then this other time they fought Mandrill. One guy from the tribunal is like, the Afro-Latin 70s funk band from Brooklyn? Luann Bot is like, no, the incredibly problematic supervillain with the sexist power set and the racist origin. The tribunal guy is like, oh, wonder what the band Mandrill is up to these days. Luann Bot is like, they broke up in 1982, but will reform in 1992 and be releasing new albums as late as 2020. They're also surprisingly active on Twitter, where they sometimes contact podcast hosts who have referenced the band in their comic book podcasts. The tribunal guy is like, good to know. Now, continue your report. Luann Bot is like, okay, let's see. Uh, one time the Defenders accidentally burned down their headquarters and Nighthawk got real mad at them. And this other time, Hellcat thought she was the devil's daughter, but then it turned out that she wasn't. Mustache Man is like, yeah, yeah, we know all the stuff that's been in Defenders comics so far, but don't you have any, I don't know, filler stories that haven't been printed yet? Luann Bot is like, oh, okay, yeah. There's this one story that Kyle told me about that happened an indeterminate amount of comic book time ago. It was just after Valkyrie came back from the dead the first time, but before the Defenders went to the backwards talk and Rand universe with the guys with giant ears on the sides of their heads. Anyway, here's that story. I call it, Ashes, Ashes, We All Fall Down. Mustache Man is like, is there any particular reason you call it that? Luann Bot is like, as near as I can tell? No. No, there isn't. So here goes. The story starts in Media Res. The Hulk is trying to punch some lady who is wearing a green and yellow costume, but the lady is sealed in some kind of a force field. The lady is like, Neat! The Hulk is super-duper strong. This bodes well for my evil scheme. The Hulk manages to crack the force field a little bit, and the lady's like, Oh, shit! She tosses the Hulk into the air with some sort of a nonsense science doohickey, then zaps him in the face with a different science doohickey that lets her take over his brain. Meanwhile, at the Riding Academy that the Defenders were still using as their headquarters at this point, Kyle is trying to ride a horse. Val is like, stop trying to ride a horse, dummo. You stink at it. Kyle is like, nuh-uh, I'm the best at horses. I can ride a horse as good as two good horse riders. Then he falls off the horse and Val laughs at him. Hooray! Patsy pulls up in the fancy sports car that she had recently commandeered from Kyle and is like, hey, what are you guys up to? Kyle's like, Val's going to try to ride this impossible to ride horse and she's probably going to fall down. Val rides the horse and does not fall down, because she is good at horses. Kyle takes Val's equestrian proficiency as a personal affront, because he is the worst. Patsy tells Kyle not to be a self-centered jerk, but come on, Patsy. It's like telling a fish not to swim, or a bird not to randomly attack people. Before Kyle has much of a chance to ignore Patsy's request for him to resist his natural impulses, 
mind-controlled the Hulk shows up with the lady who is controlling his mind. The Hulk beats up his fellow defenders, and then the lady in the green and yellow costume zaps them in the face with some science nonsense and takes over their minds. Once everyone is under her control, the lady mentions that her name is Yandroth, and that she plans on taking over Steve and Namor's minds, and then conquering the world. Wait a minute. I thought Yandroth was a dead guy, not an alive lady. Oh well, dead or alive, lady or guy, Yandroth is first and foremost a villain, so I'm sure we'll be getting an exposition dump before too long. Later that evening, Steve and Clea are hanging out in the Sanctum Sanctimonious when the Hulk knocks on the door. Clea is like, hey, looks like the Hulk is here. Let's go let him in. Steve is like, Yes, good thinking. If we don't get him inside soon, someone might see him and think that we're friends. Clay is like, that wasn't what I... <sighs> Fine, whatever, Steve. Just go open the door. Steve opens the door and the Hulk is like, Steve, good to see you. Steve thinks to himself, why, yes, I imagine it is good to see me, but the Hulk isn't usually perceptive enough to notice that. Something odd is happening. I'd better put up a magic shield, too. That's all Steve has time to think, because the Hulk punches him in the face. Hooray! Clea is like, Hulk, we've been over this. We're not supposed to punch Steve in the face. I don't like it any more than you do, but rules are rules. Yandroth steps out from behind the Hulk and shoots Clea in the face with her mind control nonsense. Steve wakes up lying on a table, surrounded by Yandroth and the mind-controlled defenders. Yandroth is like, I am totally gonna zap a mind-control who zits into your brain. But first, it's time for a little exposition. Yandroth style. Told ya. Steve is like, Yandroth, but aren't you like, double super dead? Yandroth is like, yup, but that never stopped him before. See, after Yandroth died, his ghost turned on the Omegatron, which you guys thwarted, but then he started floating around the city, and he found me. I'm a super-duper genius, but I was working as a lab tech doing easy science stuff because of sexism. Yandroth's ghost noticed that I had the same brainwaves as he did, which is definitely a real science thing, so he popped into my brain and suggested that we should merge our minds and take over the world. That sounded good to me, so we merged it up. He was planning on double-crossing me and subjugating my will to his, only I was stronger than him, so I took control of our newly remixed mind. Only I decided to use his name, because I guess it's a better name than whatever I used to be called. Anyway, that's enough exposition for now. Time to take over your brain. New Yandroth fires her brain-taker over her at Steve, only it doesn't work because Steve went all astral, so his mind isn't in his brain right now. Okay. Yandroth is like, Oh, bummer. Well, I guess I'll just murder your body then. I was hoping to steal your mind and your powers, but I'll settle for killing you instead. Suddenly, the door bursts open, and an imperial voice says, Nobody tries to kill Steve on my watch, except sometimes me, and maybe the Hulk. Imperious Rex! It's Namor! Hooray! Namor attacks Yandroth. 
Gandroth defends herself by having the Hulk and the other defenders attack Namor. Then she takes over Namor's brain. Oh no! Only while she's taking over Namor's brain, Astral Steve uses his magic to free the Hulk and Valkyrie's minds. Hooray! Val and the Hulk attack Yandroth, so she takes their minds back over. But while she's doing that, Steve frees Patsy and Kyle's minds. A game of cerebral subjugation whack-a-mole ensues, with Steve and Yandroth respectively freeing and dominating the minds of the defenders while everybody attacks everybody. Steve and Yandroth are at a temporary stalemate, but Steve knows he's not going to be able to keep this up much longer, on account of the fact that the longer his mind isn't in his body, the weaker he gets. Fortunately, he has a brainstorm. Or I guess a mind storm, seeing as his mind isn't in his brain right now. Anyway, Steve tells the defenders who are currently unsubjugated to keep resisting as hard as they can. Then he pops his mind back into his brain. Yandroth is like, Oh, I get it. You think I can't control seven minds at the same time. Well, fuck you, Steve. I did the math on this, and I can totally handle seven minds at the same time. Check this out. Yandroth goes to take over Steve's mind. Doesn't go so great for her. Yandroth shrieks in pain. An astral image flashes of OG Yandroth's giant head eating remix Yandroth's surprised astral face. Then her body collapses to the floor, apparently dead. Namor is like, what the hell was that all about? When she tried to take over Steve's mind, was it just too much for her? Patsy is like, yeah, did it just crash her hard drive to try to upload that many gigabytes of flame ghost porn all at the same time? Steve ignores Patsy and is like, Well, I do have rather a lot of mind, but no, it wasn't that. You see, the fact that she was going by the name Yandroth led me to believe that the original Yandroth ghost was still in there somewhere which meant that instead of controlling seven minds once she took over mine, which is possible, she was trying to control eight minds, which is just silly. When she was stretched that thin, the old Yandroth got free and ate her mind. Then he probably died or something, I don't know. Everyone agrees that that seems like a perfectly reasonable explanation for what has just happened. The Luanbot story concludes and her projection ends. One of the tribunal guys is like, What the hell, Robot? Why'd you tell us that story? It is of no use to us and doesn't relate to our current storyline at all. The mustache man is like, Ah, uh, go easy on the Robot. It's true that her story is a total non sequitur, but the important thing is, it was 20 pages long. And who knows, maybe we can get some useful information from part of it. Plus, we got to see Kyle fall off a horse. That was pretty fun. The rest of the tribunal agrees that watching Kyle fall off a horse was indeed pretty fun. Elf with a gun is like, Hey, can I carve up this robot lady? Mustache man is like, No, you little psycho. Elf with a gun is like, Fine, just wanted to remind you that I'm the fucking worst. Mustache man is like, No fear of anyone forgetting that. Now let's buckle down and get back to work. After all, if we don't figure out a way to destroy the Defenders, then time itself will die! (laughs) 
It will? Oh, shit. The end. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. My body is tired, and my brain feels okay. Well, that's a confusing combo, but I'm glad. Oh, it's it's pretty normal for me. Okay, cool. Thank you. How are you? I'm okay. I bought a rake today. Really? Yeah. Plastic or metal? This one's plastic. Mm. My old rake was bamboo. And here's a fun lesson. Mm -hmm. You should not leave your rake out in the rain for two years. No? No, because I went to use my bamboo rake the other day, and it fell apart. Wow. I'd gotten it out of a free pile, so, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't take care of it. But then I had to buy a new rake today to rake up my rake. Oh. Because it fell apart that hard. Oh, that burns. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's kind of a... some. It was a metaphor for something. Damned if I know what. Mm. It's like when you see a tow truck towing another tow truck. Mm -hmm. It's like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Plus, it looks like they're rubbing their butts together. Wait, what? They do- Oh, because backwards. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, we didn't come here to talk about tow trucks looking like they're rubbing their butts together. No? No. We should probably get down to business. All right. So, Corey, I've mentioned before that I think that a good name for a lawnmower is a field Zamboni. Have you? I'm pretty sure. Okay. Would you agree with me? Sure. I know you like Zambonis a lot, and I can see why. Uh-huh. But, like, lawnmower is basically a field Zamboni. hmm But the existence of a field Zamboni mm. would imply that there might be an air Zamboni. So, if we were going to call something an air Zamboni, do you think it should be, like, a crop duster? Something that is, like, changing the landscape of the air, doing a task? Or should it be a Roomba-type device for cleaning your air hockey table? It would have to be the latter. Why? Because a Zamboni is a thing that makes a surface smooth. Yeah. And air has no surface, man. (laughs) It's all around us. Okay, if you were, this is going to be difficult for you to put yourself in this headspace, because I know that, like me, you are a human man from Earth. Mm -hmm. But if that were not the case, if you were some kind of an alien anthropologist, and you were learning about Earth sports, okay, and you had first found out about ice hockey, and you then found out about field hockey, Mm -hmm. And then you were told there was a thing called air hockey. Mm-hmm. How disappointed would you be when you found out what air hockey was? I would be so disappointed. But also, as a pretty good alien anthropologist, I would have called up my first uh, interlocutor. I think that's what they call the people you interview. Mm-hmm. Um, Sport Billy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and been like, hey, Sport Billy, have you heard about this thing called air hockey? And you'd be like, yeah, it's a fucking table. <laughs> oh, it's like, Billy, language, but also <laughs> very disappointed. Yeah. I mean, air hockey is a very fun game, but I feel like the fact that we named it that, and, and I use, you know, the we meaning us humans from Earth. Sure. 
I, I think maybe limited our imaginations and kept us from developing a real air hockey, which would be super fun. It would take so many resources. It really would. It would be kind of like Quidditch, I think, right? Yeah, but with uh, things on your feet that allowed you to fly. Like hoverboards. Hover. But like boots. real hoverboards, not these things that people are talking about now calling hoverboards when they got wheels on them. That's yeah. not fucking hovering. No, that's stupid. No, but it, for it to be hockey, it would you'd have to have your feet independent of okay. one another. So it would have to be hover boots. It would hover skates. Yeah. 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 Or jet something. boots. Uh-huh. Jet boots. Yeah. Those are probably a thing. You remember when you hit me in the chest with that air hockey puck and I fell down and the bartender came over to see if everything was okay? Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty funny. That was a good time. Yeah. All right. We should probably get down to business now. Okay. So, Corey, if you could make any insect the size of a horse (laughs) and have that be your vehicle. Nope. Which insect would you choose if you had to? Uh, Honeybee. That was my initial thought because they're cute Mm -hmm. and they're furry. Yeah. And uh, and you could also defend yourself once with their stinger. Mm -hmm. But I feel like riding one would be really difficult just because of the wing placement. Like, I like that they move slower through the air than a lot of things, but their wings are beating so fast. I feel like if you were trying to ride one and it were scaled up like that, then it would be like, you know, being in a convertible helicopter. Like, your hair is doing crazy things, you're going to lose all your hearing, and it would be difficult to stay on it. So I think I might go with an ant, because I would be more like a horse, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I want to be able to fly, but any real flying thing, I think, would be really difficult logistically. Except maybe a butterfly, Mm because they've got, like, a place to sit up near the front, you Uh know? Well, I thought you meant just for land use, because bees can walk, too. Oh, oh, a land... Okay, well, fuck, Corey, you win. Thank you. (laughs) That's really good. All right. They are so cute. They're very, very cute. And they're they're nice in terms, like, anthro... What's the word for that? Anthropomorphically? Yeah. They're they're nice. Like, yeah. I feel like wasps are dicks oh, and totally. honeybees are chill. Agreed. They're just out there doing a job. Mm-hmm. Be tough to feed one. Where you have to find some giant flowers, I think. Do they eat pollen? Or do they just turn pollen into honey? Uh, Corey, what do bees eat? Bees eat nectar? Like hummingbirds? I don't know what bees eat. I don't either. I'd be worried I'd try to feed it honey and it'd get all pissed. I bet they eat honey. That's I don't what, think they, they can eat honey. They That's what they make to feed the baby bees. That's why they make it. Really? Yeah. Oh my god, we're dicks. We're stealing their baby food. Am I wrong? No, you're probably right. There's oh. a lot I don't know about bees, but we're like... In the history of humans and animals... We're robocopping up all of their fucking baby food. Not all of it, otherwise the colonies would die. And also, like, historically, like, they're getting an okay deal in terms yeah, of Yeah, that. okay, that's... We're not eating bee meat. And it's like cows are getting really the, the shitty end of the lollipop on that deal. There's no foie bigras. No. It should be fuzzy end of the lollipop. If you've got a shitty end on your <laughs> lollipop, you're doing lollipop shit that I am not down with. <laughs> so, I just don't think there's a ton to talk about in this comic book. <laughs> but we should probably try. Corey, what did you think about this comic book? I was wondering when you might ask that. Yeah, I agree. And I have to say, it was pleasant. Yeah. I enjoyed not having too much to worry about, and I read it. It was like, oh, nice little self-contained thing. Maybe setting something up later. If not, whatever. 
Yeah, it was fine. I think there is a pretty severe drop in quality in the art from the main story to the, I don't know, bookends of it with the elf with a gun and the robot-faced lady who is crypt-keepering this story at us. Mm -hmm. It seems like a story that was, I think, probably sitting in a drawer for about five years. And then they're like, shit, we're up against a deadline. We got to put something out. It doesn't connect to any of the storylines that we're covering right now. I think even one of the characters at the end basically says, uh, well, this is a bunch of useless information that isn't relevant to this storyline at all. And that was kind of the case. But yeah, it was fun. It was nice to see Sal Buscema's art again. As I said, it seemed like the end caps of the story were put on real quick and the art in those, I was like, oh no, is this the level of art we're going to be getting in this story in the first couple pages? And then once we got into the story, it was a lot better, which would again lead me to believe that it was a story that had maybe been sitting around in a break glass in case of emergency type situation. But wait, maybe I missed it in some earlier setup, but it does seem like it's foreshadowing something big because the, what were they called? Tribunal guys? Uh-huh basically said, hey, we have to beat the Defenders or time's going to end. Yeah. Did, is that a thing? Or is that a new thing? Well, I don't think time ended. Or, or maybe it did. Maybe that's why time has been such a shit show lately. Maybe Nietzsche foretold of this comic book. Man, they with, could at least start with getting rid of Daylight Savings. You'd think. You'd think you'd want to just <laughs> dip your toes into the destroyed <laughs> start. water. Start. Yeah. Hell, let's go to metric while we're at it. <laughs> Why not? What's metric time like? It's probably easier. Once you get used to it, it probably is. Oh, yeah. We should have, if we had started learning metric time when we were kids, by now, we would know what was happening <laughs> with time. Metric, we would be temporally no. literate me right me now. Metric time is just 24-hour time. No, because metric, it has to be a 10-base system. No, I'm saying let's convert our number system and miles and all that to metric. Okay. Well, we're simplifying time. Just do it all in one Do shot. it all at once. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're, we're in agreement. Um, I don't know what they're setting up with this story. I don't know that they're necessarily going to use the Yandroth thing. It doesn't seem like it to me, frankly. This is a story that it is written by Stephen Grant instead of J.M. DeMatteis. It is almost like in the Defender's head office, they have this emergency list that says, well, if we need to break one of Steve Gerber's toys and give a resolution to a storyline that he wouldn't want with a character that he created, we'll call Stephen Grant and have him do it. Because he's the guy that they brought in to write the Omega the Unknown storyline. Oh. Uh, and this is the one where we find out that the elf with a gun is part of some... I don't know, time-traveling Illuminati society that lives at the end of time, and he's a robot shepherd? Also, I'm pretty sure that in the past he wore tights. Yeah, and now he is wearing a sweater dress? A really short one, too, and I'm like, I'm gonna see a weird little elf dong any minute now, and I don't... Mm-hmm. I mean... No, there, there's an elf dong of Damocles hanging over our head. This whole issue. Which, I will say, I still prefer to a Danny Chase of Damocles. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it does seem like that thing's gonna gonna pop out and say, Hey, how you doing? <laughs> At any time. Like, I didn't like this character. I don't need yeah. to see that. No. It looks like he has a large shirt that he has put a belt on. That doesn't make it a dress. 
dude. Yeah. yeah. So there, there's that. Yep. We saw Kyle again, despite him being dead, because as I said, this is a story that took place between the issues 68 and 69. 68 was the one where Val came back from the dead the first time after fighting the street shark-looking Norse god of biathlons who was looking for a promotion. And then 69 was another, like, fill-in one-off issue where they all got together and fought the uh, omnipotent tennis pro. Do you remember that one? Man, it's funny. When you repeat this stuff back to me, I'm like, did we? Did No. That's, it's, 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 it's all a dream. You're just making stuff up. It seems like I am, doesn't it? But, I remember the shark guy. I don't remember the tennis guy. Yeah, there's no reason why you should. It was much like this one, just kind of like a one-off I think they were up against a deadline, different creative team type of issue. There was something about that one, though, in terms of... I think there was like a very ornate fountain in front of a city hall in a town or something. Oh, yeah. Does that ring some kind of a bell? Yeah. I think there was something Yeah, I remember talking yeah. about that. Yeah. Then there's this issue. What did you think of the lady who has Yandroth in her brain? Man... It's a weird one. I feel like I vacillated between it being a thing of, I don't know, maybe uh, dancing around or, or slightly trying to address sexism or just being a lady scientist. What? Yeah. You know, it was kind of, but you could sort of see it both ways, right? I, yeah, I think there is the, the initial, like, it does seem like the comic was strange. Like, can't compute it at all. <laughs> no. like, what? <laughs> A lady scientist? Let me hop back in my spaceship and fly to Mars again. Although he could actually wrap his mind around doing that. And I think he probably has in this comic book at some point. Mm. But yeah, th there is that when they show her in her lab and she's like, these idiots make me be a lab tech, even though I'm smart. And it's like, oh, okay, is she going to be pissed? And, you know, she was pissed. She has the same brainwaves as Yandroth, so a science ghost was able to go in her brain and then tried to take her brain over, but she wouldn't let it take her brain over because mm -hmm. she was stronger, which is good. Mm -hmm. But it also does seem to be like, no good will come of having a female scientist. Yeah, it's a weird one. Like, she dealt with sexism in her work environment, and they, I feel like they highlighted that, so sure. good job. But yeah. Then the other stuff. Yeah. And uh, weird issues, just like having the ghost try to take over her body of like bodily autonomy, uh, especially in light of current events, was yeah. shitty. It is weird to me that she doesn't even get a name in this issue. She does eventually get a name. Mm. This is her only appearance in a comic book. But in 2006, there was a new version of the handbook to the marvel universe and the entry on yandroth informs us that her name is stephanie donal wow good job with the research huh. i don't know why they bothered giving her a name at that point but they did well, like yeah. 23 years after the fact with her having no intervening appearances uh not only does she not have a name in this issue though she doesn't use the names of any of the female defenders. Like, she just calls, calls them, them honey. honey exclusively, which was a weird choice mm -hmm. and was uncomfortable and made me think, like, oh, is Yandroth in there and he's being sexist? Or is that 
her doing a thing. It doesn't seem like that would be something a lady scientist would necessarily do, refer to all other women as honey. No, it's more like a like a matronly it, it's like, thing, right? I think if you're going to call somebody honey, it should be in one of two situations. Either you are a sassy diner waitress. Mm-hmm. I think then you can get away with calling people honey. Or if you are Luke Cage and Dr. Doom owes you money, you can say, where's my money, honey? And I will be delighted by that every time. Those are two good ones. There aren't very many others. Not too many. I mean, I, Call it, your kid or your significant other. Term of endearment. But otherwise, I think it pretty much always comes across as, at best, patronizing. Mm -hmm. I know we had a friend who would often refer to the waitstaff as honey or darling or things, and he's a very nice man, but I was like, oh god, please don't do that. Every time. Uncomfortable. And he worked service industry. I feel like he really should have known better. Yeah, I feel like that was not to excuse the behavior, but like a very old man trapped in a young man's body. <laughs> like, I don't know. That was yeah. like you hear your grandfather talk that way and then just didn't learn not to do it. Right. I don't know. But yeah, basically, you just shouldn't do it. Agreed. And unless, as I said, you are Luke Cage and Dr. Doom owes you $200. Oh, yeah, that's fair. I love that story where uh, Luke Cage wants to get his $200 back from Dr. Doom. He steals Mr. Fantastic's car and flies to Latveria to try to get it. Yeah, I think that's come up once or twice. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. This issue had the thing that always kind of bugs me in comics that comes up all the time, but this time it was the power of super science. Uh-huh. Anytime there's these powers, kind of like we're seeing with Troya and the other series, like... Oh, here's a situation. Um, you know what would solve this? Oh, I'll just pull it out of a hat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there is a reason that Yandroth was set up as a counter to Doctor Strange, because the way he uses science is treated identical to magic. I know there's that Arthur C. Clarke quote about to any society not advanced enough, science looks like magic, and they are really making a lot of hay out of that in this issue, because, yeah, Yandroth or Stephanie, is uh, just doing nonsense stuff and being like, I did it with science. Your magic is stupid. It's like, yeah, I guess. Yeah, boo. Mm-hmm. I talked about this seeming like it is maybe a deadline buster in some ways, and another clue that that might be the case is the fact that the lettering is done by D. Hands, which is short for Diverse Hands, who we saw previously issues inked by that when they were up against a deadline. I will say, unlike that issue, I think the lettering in this issue seems pretty consistent and is done pretty well by whoever the diverse hands were who were working on it. Mm -hmm. But it is just another clue as to what was going on with this. And yeah, I don't know. I would be very surprised if the Hulk and the other defenders fighting Yandroth slash Stephanie in this issue is a story point going forward. But wouldn't be the first time I've been surprised. Good. I'm still not used to it, and I don't care for it. Oh, but... no, no. Nobody likes them. No. I mean, I mean, there's people that say they prefer to be surprised. Those people are liars. Because a lot of times, I will just come up behind them and put a <laughs> pie in their face. They don't like it. And, they, and they're like, 
ah, what are you doing? Who are you? I'll be like, I thought you said you liked surprises. And they'll say like, I was alone when I said that. And I'll be like, surprise. <laughs> they don't like it. No, that's creepy. No, they're liars. That's creepy. What? what? Yeah. It's creepy that they're liars about saying they like surprises. Yeah, I agree. What do you think of the cover of the issue? Pretty good. You know, it tells you some lady we haven't met yet is making the Defenders fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty well drawn. It's by uh, Ron Wilson and Terry Austin. They do a great job. I really like the way Ron Wilson draws in general. He draws one of my favorite The Things. He did a pretty big run on, I think it was Marvel 2-in-1, and that was cool. Does the cover look familiar to you in any way? Yes. It should. It is very reminiscent of a previous Defenders cover, the Defenders number 100, which I'm going to show you right now. And Mm. that is very similar to the X-Men 100. Both covers are homages to the X-Men 100. With the 100th issue of the Defenders, there's really a reason for it. With this, especially having gotten an homage to the X-Men 100 issue so recently in the Defenders... It seems like an odd choice, but they do a nice job with it. It just doesn't really feel earned, Mm -hmm. you know? It's not quite a pun on it. It's just another version of it. Yeah, well, it sets up that it's going to be Defender versus Defender. Sure, but isn't like every other issue Defender versus Defender? The thing I like about this one is it looks like Steve is like, Guys, chill out! (laughs) Just doing that thing with his hands of like, when you're trying Uh to be like, hey... He's trying to do that, but then Clea next to him is like, I'm a bear! Yeah. <laughs> like making bear closet people. Pretty good. So what would you say are your top five salad dressings? Oh, boy. I like a good vinaigrette. Sure. Uh, any particular kind of vinaigrette? Because um, I don't think you'd take vinaigrettes off the board with just one choice. Well, it's a type of salad dressing. Yeah, but it's not a specific type of salad dressing. I think we got to go... Not totally granular, but like, I mean, you don't want a granular okay. vinaigrette. Obviously. Olive oil, balsamic vinegar, chopped up shallots, a little bit of Dijon, some salt and pepper. Okay, cool, cool. I didn't need a whole ingredient list. I'm just saying like a balsamic vinaigrette would be a Oh, a I'm sorry. Vinaigrette, yes, you know? a balsamic vinaigrette. Okay. Yeah. Well, yours, yours sounds very good. So that would be five, would you say, or one? That's probably at the top. Okay. For me, I do like a good, I, I like a creamy balsamic vinaigrette. Like, that that can be pretty good. I think that might be my number one. Good all-purpose dressing. Mm. Number two, I'm going to go Caesar. It's a classic for a reason. Okay, I also love a Caesar. That is one of my favorite salads. I'm going to, I'm going to, wow, we're two for two. Oh, boy. Okay, number three. Ranch. Ranch is pretty good. I'm going to put slightly above ranch. Toby's feta dressing. Oh, that is That good. stuff is good. It's a creamy feta dressing. It's got a little bit of blue cheese in it. You got to read the ingredient list to find out that's in there. But uh, that's a really good dressing. That is a good one. Ironic because, or is it ironic? I was going to go with blue cheese. Just oh. for, or like a regular blue cheese. Sure. For, as, yeah, like blue, on a wedge salad. Blue cheese is really good. For me, I only end up really liking it in restaurants. I don't think I've had a home situation where I've put blue cheese on something and enjoyed it. I think maybe I need someone else to do the portion control for me on it. Uh, Just because I I go a little hog wild when it comes to blue cheese. I'm like, I like this, so I want a lot of it. And then I end up ruining it for myself. Right. So that's a problem. 
And then I like a good poppy seed dressing. I think that's pretty good. Oh, yeah. yeah like a Brianna's? Yeah. I've been doing that lately with some, uh, some uh, little teriyaki salmon on top of that. Ooh. With some, uh, you do like a broccoli slaw and uh, maybe grate uh, apple as part of it, too. Over like, uh, you know, like romaine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Chopped up pretty fine. Put a little poppy seed dressing on there. Man, it's a nice sounds, time. That sounds good. Yeah. I think uh, my last one, and I don't know, I might have to change the order of these around, is... Sure. Have you had the fried Brussels sprout salad at Departure? I have not. It's freaking amazing. But the dressing is honey and fish sauce and lime juice with some uh, serrano chili in it and a little bit of cilantro. It's so good. Oh, man, that sounds really good. Yeah. You shred Brussels sprouts and fry them hard, like dry fry them. Nice. And toss it in that. It is bonkers. All right. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah. This is a pretty good list. Thanks. Well, I think we've probably covered everything there is to talk about in this comic book. You want to move into the minutia? I think we have to. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. I can't tell if FDR looks, like, benign or disapproving sometimes in that picture. I think it's one of those where it's like his tiny little beady eyes are following you. Yeah. Yeah, you can change. It's like a... Like a... Avuncular or creepy. I don't know which. It's like a temperament-based lenticular animation. So, like... You've explained this to me. I forgot what a lenticular animation is. It's when you change what angle you're looking at it from and Uh, the image shifts. Oh, yeah. So, it's like if you look at him from one angle, he's like, You're doing an okay job. I'm with you. How about that new deal? Pretty good, huh? Mm-hmm. And then if you look at it from a slightly different angle, he's like, I gave you the new deal and you do this with it? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I'll build a damn later. So, Corey, what category do you feel like starting off with? You want to talk about artwork? Let's do it. What was your favorite panel in this comic? Gosh. I think probably my favorite was just a really simple one, but it was where Patsy got zotted with the brain chip thing. Mm-hmm. She looks very nice, but also very surprised. And uh, it's it's well done. Yeah, that's pretty good. I like that one. There's the impact of the laser beam hitting her forehead, or the brain implant beam, or whatever it is. Super science. Yeah. But it's pretty cool. I like that panel a lot. My favorite, I think, is... Also a very simple image, but it is the Hulk punching out Doctor Strange. And the panel that it happens in, it is just a giant green fist coming at the screen. And it says, whoom, over the top. And there's just an impact and motion lines around it. And it's just nice. I liked that one a lot. I think my other favorite is on page 16, the Sanctum Donnybrook, I call it. Hmm. It is just a big group battle scene that is happening in the Sanctum Sanctorum. You get a few different mouth trapezoids in this, and it is just nice to see Sal Buscema draw the Defenders again. He drew, like, the first 40-some issues of the book and then did some fill-ins at various points since then. But when I see Sal Buscema draw the Defenders and he is taking his time with it, it looks right to Mm -hmm. me, and I appreciated that. Yeah, that's a good fight scene, for sure. 
I also had a follow-up, which is uh, page 20. I called it Mind Blown. And it's after we learn that... What's the magic number? Eight is too many minds to control. Mm-hmm. Seven's fine, <laughs> but go one more than that. Lights well, out. Yeah, and Steve just knew that intrinsically. He's like, seven minds being controlled is a theoretic possibility, but eight? That's just ridiculous. And yeah, you get a you get a very nice image in here of what looks like um I don't know, a science ghost vulture man who has a lady mouth. <laughs> like not a lady's mouth, but a lady for his mouth. It's very confusing. Yeah, her head is much smaller under his head where his mouth should be and she's screaming a big salbucema scream, but on the astral plane. It's a nice image. It's a little bit confusing, but I think it works, and it's supposed to be a little bit confusing. And then we see her actual face after that has happened, and man, it just doesn't look good. No. Vacant. Yep. Pretty vacant. Like a Sex Pistols song. Mm-hmm. Pretty vacant. That was very good, Corey. That was a good impression. Oh, thanks. Yeah, impressions are kind of my thing. <laughs> I know. Only Johnny Rotten ones. No, no, no. You you also do a very good impression of a French person. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So, uh, Corey, give me a little uh, Francois Mitterrand. Uh, politics! I'm sorry, is Francois Mitterrand in the room right now? It's pretty good, right? Yeah. Blew my mind. Yeah. What was your favorite sound effect this issue? I liked a trio of sound effects on, I think, page nine. That was Yandroth beating up one of the defenders and then putting the brain implant in, and it was swat, swat, zot. Pretty good. Swat, swat, zot. Swat, swat, zot sounds pretty good. That sounds like that might be like a... Uh, Default like, cover band. <laughs> oh, I was going to say like a UGK chorus. Ah. Swat, swat, zot. But any up. Swat, swat, zot. I like it. Pretty good. Hi, Editor Hub here in the future. And I just wanted to point out, I am aware that Anti-Up is by M.O.P., not U.G.K. Sorry about that. I like that a lot. This was actually a fairly sound effect intensive issue, especially from what we've been getting lately. I feel like as the 80s progress, you move away a little bit from having as many sound effects in comics illustrated the same way. And as this is a throwback and either takes place about five years previous or was maybe drawn five years previous, you get a lot more sound effects. I also really liked especially the Zot, in part because Zot is the name of one of my favorite comics. It's a Scott McCloud comic that I liked a lot. Hmm. But I also like on page 17, there's a really nice thump, mm. which is pretty fun. And that's just a fun noise to make. Thump. Yeah, that is uh, the Submariner punching the Hulk. So, pretty good. It's a good punch noise. Yeah. Thoop. Ouch. Corey, let's have ourselves a Battle of the Band Names. What band names were you able to find in the text? Both of them have to do with mines. Ooh. There was a lot of mind stuff in this issue. There was indeed. I only have the one, so I'm going to have you go first. All right. I only have two. And uh, the first one is called Minds to Rubble. 
Oh, pretty good. Mm -hmm. What kind of music do you think they play? Probably some kind of like political punk rock. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. That sounds pretty good. Mm -hmm. That makes more sense than what my initial thought was, which was Simple Minds uh, mixed with Barney Rubble as the master rapper from the Fruity Pebbles commercials. Oh, no. So it would be a lot of lyrics about saying what his name is and then saying what he's here to say. Yeah. I like yours better. Thank you. My thought was uh, a softer echo. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I think they are very heavily inspired by Procol Harum. Mm. Is that the band the Hulk liked, or is that the band the Hulk wanted no part of? I can't remember. Oh, I know they came up before. Yeah. A band that the Hulk has thoughts on. Yeah, that's fair. But yeah, a softer echo. It seems kind of whiter shade of paley. It's you got know? a nice, nice ring to it. Yeah, and uh, I think so they probably do like, I don't know, prog rock soul. It's not... Uh... I was thinking initially when you said that, like, Echo and the Bunnymen, just, but without the Bunnymen. But just quieter. Because, uh, yeah, the Bunnymen aren't there. No. They're the noisy ones. Oh, <laughs> Bunnymen? Yeah. Everybody knows how loud bunnies are. Hopping around, all willy-nilly. <laughs> yeah. Floppy-eared and noisy. Boisterously eating their children. Ugh. Gross. Well, that's bunnies for you. Mm-hmm. What is your final band name? Ah, the final band name is The Sound of a Mind Being Freed. Oh, that's pretty long. It's probably too long. Let's go with yours. A Softer Echo? A Softer Echo without the Bunnymen, yep. That works for me. Although I did like your first one a lot, too. Minds to Rubble. Oh, I did like Minds to Rubble, too, but I think I would be worried that Barney Rubble would be showing up and trying to steal my Fruity Pebbles by claiming to be the master rapper and saying what he has to say. That's bad. That's a bad rap. It's a terrible rap. That's worse than the Super Bowl shuffle. <laughs> it's on it's par. It's on par. It's on yeah. par with the Super Bowl shuffle. Well, maybe it is worse because he did come to cause some trouble. Uh-huh. I think that's fair. Yeah, it's not nice. No. Sartorially speaking, what fashion in this comic book did you find most worthy of note? Oh man, top of the list. Val can rock a powder blue jumpsuit with some red shoes. Looks so cool. Okay, I did not see it as a powder blue jumpsuit. I saw it as a denim jumpsuit, or possibly a, some people would call it a Canadian tuxedo. Some people would call it Jay Leno cosplay. <laughs> but it'd have to be like acid washed though. It was a very light blue, at least in my copy. Yeah, I mean, you've seen Jay Leno. It's been a... I was going to say, it's been a big minute because I was thinking of his chin. Oh, yeah. He has a big chin. He does have a big chin. That's a No, good, it's been a minute. Point, I, I don't remember what... In his, like, day-to-day -day wear, it is all denim all the time. Like, denim shirt with a denim jacket over it That's as he drives his fancy little fucking cars around. Mm-hmm. So I saw Val is wearing a lot of denim, uh, in part because she was, like, taking care of horses. And uh, I always think of, like, oh, there's a lady wearing a denim shirt. She's uh, doing some horse care. Mm -hmm. Lisa has a denim shirt that she wears. And I was like, oh, you look like you're going to take care of some horses. And then she pounded her fist into her hands. It's like, yeah. It's like, no, I don't mean horse murdering. Oh. But since then, we always call that a horse murder shirt. Oh, that's cute. 
Yeah, we're adorable. <laughs> Just don't go near any horses. Shan't. Don't have to worry about me on that score. Yeah, you get weird big faces. Yeah. So I also liked her jumpsuit. I also liked, on page eight, Patsy wearing glasses. That was my other one. With I called it a uh, business blouse. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. Yeah, well, it ends up being a moot point because Yandros slash Stephanie slash the Hulk tears it right off of her. And fortunately, she has her Hellcat costume on under it. I hope that Stephanie Yandroth the Hulk knew that. That was pretty fucking weird. It was really weird. It it's, a, it's a weird move to do. As like, Yeah, I'll take care of this person. I'll rip her clothes up. But I did like the way that Patsy looked with her, yeah, business blouse and glasses. It was like, oh, Patsy should wear fashion glasses more often. Mm-hmm. That's a good look for her. It was a good look. Yeah. We already talked about Elf with a Guns shirt dress Ugh. thing. But we should probably talk a little bit about Stephanie Yandroth's outfit. I think it's a pretty good one. She has kind of Nancy Reagan hair, mm-hmm. which makes sense in a supervillain. But I like the green and yellow combo. I think those colors go well together. It is definitely a supervillain look. And it's confusing to me a little bit why she bothered with it. I guess, you know, dress for the job you want, not the job you have. But, like, she was a scientist. She's not wearing a modified science costume. She's wearing a supervillain costume. Well, you get, your goal is world taking over world domination Uh you gotta wear those big gloves and stuff yeah because the world's dirty and also uh politics you don't want to get your hands dirty with politics the color scheme yellow and green yeah green and yellow kill a feller oh you're right yeah you're right and she wants to get it done in a timely manner so not blue and white she don't want to be up all night exactly (laughs) we've learned nothing else from the fabulous furry freak brothers it's how to tell superhero villain costumes apart Mm -hmm. that and times of weed and no money will get you through better than times of money and no weed please that was free will and franklin's motto yes yeah also not objectively not true that yeah good point having had the experience (laughs) yeah having tested that theorem empirically a lot (laughs) i've tested the second one a lot it happened at the same time for me you had money and no weed at the same time as you had weed and no money? Uh, <laughs> Free Will and Franklin is deep. <laughs> yeah. Corey, every issue of a Defenders comic book has a best defender and also a worst offender. In this issue, who'd you have as your best? Who'd you have as your worst? For my best, I had Val because of the razzing that she gave to Kyle when he fell off the horse because he was trying to be a macho dickhead about it. That was pretty good razzing. I enjoyed that as well. Yeah. For my best, I had some question marks next to him, but I, I did end up ultimately, I think, going with Steve. He did technically save the day by knowing exactly how many people could be mind-controlled by Stephanie at one time and where the tipping point was in that, and also knowing to keep his mind out of his brain at the right time so that her science nonsense wouldn't work on him. Yeah, I had him as my runner-up for those reasons, but it was, I don't know, I'm kind of tired of this, like, oh, I'm so good at everything. 
yeah thing so i give it to val that's fair and also i didn't like the way he answered the door for the hulk the hulk shows up at his door and clay is like oh we should go let him in it's our friend and he's like yes we should go greet him so that nobody sees that he's here yeah like, come on buddy Get that's that. your friend don't draw attention that was his he's selfish he's he worried yeah. about it what will the neighbors think get over yourself steve yeah Conversely, for my worst defender, I had Kyle. Oh. He was a real dickhole. What a surprise. Yeah, it was nice to be able to give it to him again. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen him in not that long a while, but a little while now. And, uh, yeah, there was a certain nostalgia in, uh, being like, oh, yeah, he really was a dickhole. Yeah, I gave it to him for two reasons. One was just doing that kind of narcissistic stuff he does where... Val's good at riding horses, and he's like, Val's good at riding horses to bother me. Yeah, and also just like, well, if she's good at riding horses, I bet I'm even better at riding horses. I mean, I'm Kyle, I'm good at everything. I've never really tried to ride a horse, but I assume I can. You can't just assume you can ride a horse. It's like assuming you can speak Italian. Like, well, I've never really tried to before, but how hard could it be? Right. I mean, Italians can do it. Pretty hard. Yeah, it's real hard. I made that mistake. <laughs> Scusi. Yeah. Oh, well, you're pretty good at it, actually. Yeah. Okay, that was way better than me. Well, I, I did listen to um, a few minutes of a Rosetta Stone thing. We were going to do that on a road trip, weren't we? Yeah, we were. And I, then we just didn't. I downloaded the software and <laughs> from the place. and uh... Yeah, and then we just listened to Dean Martin instead. Yep. That's probably the right call. He's Italian. His name's Dino Crescetti. There you go. Now, look at me. I'm speaking Italian. Hey, Little old wine drinker me. That was him, right? Yeah. Okay. Mamma Mia. Hey. Huh? Good job. It's a me, Hub. No. I'm gonna win. Okay. Yeah, bad job, Kyle. Yep. Terrible <laughs> stereotypes of Italians <laughs> that he uses. Yeah, he's the worst. Oh, I like Kyle. <laughs> Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What words did you like best? Much like you would like a pie, were that pie not made out of steel? So, yeah, lots of words to choose from in the issue. I think some of my favorites actually described pretty much exactly what was happening in the way that the panel was illustrated, but it had a nice ring to it. And that was, a glow, a flash, their bodies shimmer into negative images, and they vanish. Oh, pretty good. Yeah. A little bit show and telly, but, uh, nice phraseology. For my favorite words, I went with a phrase that I think kind of summed up how I felt about this comic book. I mentioned it earlier. Luan slash Robot Face has finished Crypt Keepering, the story that she tells. One of the guys in the tribunal says, Enough! We have learned nothing that will help us! And it's like, yeah, that is kind of how I felt about this issue. The other guy follows it up with basically saying, you know, there's no such thing as trivia. Every knowledge is useful in some situation. But is it, though? Well, I don't know if it's knowledge, but if you can look at knowledge as carrying things in your pockets. You remember that one time you had a shoehorn and somebody <sighs> wanted it? That was pretty great. And I do view knowledge as carrying things in my pocket. There you go. That was maybe the best feeling I've ever had. Is having somebody say, gosh, I wish I had a shoehorn, and having a shoehorn in my pocket. That I've been carrying around for years for no particular reason. Mm -hmm. Wow. All right. I'm a convert, Corey. Thank you. This is a great issue. 
Loved it. You're welcome. Corey, I got a question I'm going to ask you. Mm. So prepare yourself. Okay. Steal yourself. Okay. Behold. Okay. Oh. Or be gone. Mm. Now you answered too fast. You already said okay for behold. So now you have to behold this. Oh, jeez. I'm reading a book right now where... Congratulations. Thank you. I don't like to brag, but I am very good at it. Reading a book where George Kennedy, veteran character actor George Kennedy, solves a murder. It's written by and for George Kennedy, and it stars him. Mm. Also, Dean Martin's in it. Oh. Yeah, as a character. Mm. If you had to solve a murder, is there an actor that you would have help you solve that murder? And if so, what actor do you choose? So you've already said you're going to be holding. It's legally binding. <laughs> what actor are you choosing to help you solve a murder? Man, it's like, do I want to get it done or do I want to have oh, that's a good, a good time point. doing it or what? I, oh boy. I mean, I think ideally both. I don't know. I'm I'm stuck between either Peter Falk or Vin Diesel. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! Those are pretty different choices. Yeah. Can you imagine those guys showing up for the same casting call? <laughs> I just saw the like, most we're... recent Fast and the Furious movie. Oh, yeah? How yeah. was it? It was like the other ones. Okay. But they go to space. Oh, well, that's nice. We were looking the other night on uh, HBO trying to find something to watch, and they have a section that's family movies, and they had all the Fast and the Furious movies well, there. of course. <laughs> it's like, family. It's about family. <laughs> that's, yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I thought that was pretty good. Peter Falk. You think you're going Peter Falk? Yeah. You think he picked up some Columbo skills uh, along the way? Yeah. I mean, he's like, was there, there wasn't another Columbo, right? Not yet. There has been talk Vin that Diesel. Either... Oh, my God. <laughs> One more thing. <laughs> Family. Hey, you keep saying that. I'm sorry, I'm a very rich person who's murdered my wife and... Oh, no, I've said it aloud now. There you go. You've gotten me again, Columbo. There has been talk that either Natasha Lyonne or uh, Mark Ruffalo might play the next Columbo. And I think either one of them would be pretty good. I really like the idea of Natasha Lyonne. Yeah, both really interesting Mm -hmm. choices. Gosh, I think I'm going to go with uh, David Paymer. The George Kennedy thing put me thinking along the lines of a character actor. David Paymer, he's been in a ton of stuff. You would instantly recognize him. But I think it would be better to go with a working actor rather than necessarily a star. Like, uh, I want a character actor in part, I think, because if you're a big Hollywood star, I think you probably have forgotten how to do everything for yourself and are completely incompetent in every aspect of life that may be a personal prejudice (laughs) wow but don't don't you see that kind of being the case i feel like yeah you're you're living in a bubble at that point you don't know how people think you don't know how to relate to people anymore uh but david paymer he's he's working consistently could show up anywhere so he could like not necessarily a master of disguise but any place he pops up you're gonna be like oh yeah he probably belongs there Hmm. and he just yeah he seems like a, a reasonable guy intelligent good guy hmm. david paymer reasonable intelligent good guy oh, that's what you look for in he's got uh, my vote murder solver for murder solver <laughs> yeah vote david paymer for county murder solver behold
Behold, pair of beholds for Vin Diesel and David Paymer. Uh, no, Peter Falk. Oh, Peter Falk. I'm sorry. I mix those two up all the time. It's understandable. They're both dynamic. Uh, I, they go out for a lot of the same roles. Yeah. Now, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. In this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Well, you may disagree, but I will remind you of the shoehorn. Hmm? All knowledge is power. Oh. You knew at some point somebody might need a shoehorn. I didn't, though. But, but maybe... you probably felt like you did when they needed it. Yeah, probably. You know? You're just like, oh, look at me. Eerily prescient. Smart. Smart hub. That's what it says on my business card. Eerily, Eerily prescient, smart hub. Smart, smart. <laughs> smart, smart hub. Yeah. Eerily prescient, smart, smart hub. Uh-huh. And it's just got my email address. Yeah. Because I don't want people calling me. No. Nobody got time for that? No, no, I'm busy. Yeah. I got things to rake. Stuff to remember. Mm-hmm. Stuff to know. Ah, because knowledge is power. No such thing as trivia. All right, fair enough. I think that's an excellent Hulk rule. That I would do well to remember. Mm. I think I have my Hulk's rule being something that we've talked about before. You shouldn't call people honey unless you are a diner waitress or Luke Cage talking to Dr. Doom. Or answering... No, that wouldn't be you calling somebody. I was going to say, or answering the question, what do bees maybe eat? Honey. Yeah. But... <laughs> But that wouldn't be you calling somebody something. If that they didn't be, eat it, why the fuck would they make so much of it? I don't know. Like, cabinet makers don't eat cabinets. That's not a good analogy at all. I think it's a great analogy. They make a lot of cabinets. They don't eat cabinets. They make the cabinets to make money. Well, maybe the bees make the honey to make money. That... More money, more honey. It rhymes. More money, more problems. Oh, touche. More cabinets, more. Cabinets? Nope. Doesn't work. You're right. It's a bad metaphor. Uh, thank you. <laughs> that was quick. We got to that fast. <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. More money, more problems doesn't rhyme either. Just have to rhyme. Well, then maybe cabinet makers do eat cabinets. Wait, is that what I was arguing? I don't know. Me either. Why are we fighting? I don't know. I love you, Corey. I love you too, man. <laughs> Well, Corey, I have just one more question I have to ask you. In the year of our Lord, 1983, and the month of our Lord, May, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Following the 25th of the month, Wong was spending a fair amount of time trying to uh, convince Steve that Jabba the Hutt was not a thing and was, in fact, a fictional construct. Oh. They had gone to see on the 25th, the premiere of uh, Return of the Jedi. Mm -hmm. However, the marketing collateral that Steve had seen was for the brief time when a few thousand posters got circulated that said Revenge of the Jedi, and then they changed the name. Oh. So he was like more like, oh, this is like a, a documentary. There's other worlds. There's things going on. and um, Because documentaries would normally start with the word revenge. Well, no, it started with Return. So documentary, you know would start with, like, a return of something like, yeah, I don't know, the return of the, what's a bird? Uh, the Swallows to Capistrano? Yeah. Okay. Good documentary, right? Gotcha. So, 
you know, he's spending a kind of inordinate amount of time sequestering himself doing research. Mm. Wong suspected more so to do with the Carrie Fisher role and the Job of the Hut thing. Gotcha. But anyway, that's just what he was doing. But Wong was also kind of kind of bummed because he was uh, friends with a couple directors who had been actually in line or tapped to direct the film. Wait, wait, wait. Wong was friends with David Lynch? And David Cronenberg. Whoa! Wong was also super annoyed. That's a hell of a party. That, uh, Kyle hung out with those guys, too, because he's, you know, he's in fancy circles, and mm. he, he liked to call them Double D. Oh, boy. Fucking Kyle. But anyway, yeah, Wong's like, he was sure that it was either going to be Lynch or Cronenberg, and was just disappointed at how not weird the film was, because right. it wasn't one of those right? Two, and had to deal with the consequences to even his Jabba the Hutt or Carrie Fisher fixation. Gosh, can you imagine David Cronenberg's version of Job of the Hut? Like, there's already some weird body horror going on with that dude, but you pop a Cronenberg in there, oof. It's too much. Have, like, some inside-out Ewoks. Nobody oh. needs that. No. Who did D end up directing it? I always remember that David Lynch was up for the job. The Welsh's guy. Uh, Welsh's? That's a grape juice. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it was a guy from Wales. Richard... Well Marquand. Well, that's a fun name. Yeah. He had a cameo in the movie. He was uh, one of the bad Imperial guys, like Major or Lieutenant Marquand or something. And oh. also did a voice of one of the droids. Oh, good for him. A bad droid. I like Return of the Jedi. I think that's a fun movie. That was fine. Pretty good. Mm -hmm. Good for them. I'm, I'm glad that they enjoyed that movie. Glad that Wong was able to calm down Steve and convince him that Jabba the Hutt wasn't real. I wonder if a few years later he also had to convince Steve that Pizza the Hutt from Spaceballs wasn't real, because that, that, that guy creeped me out. I didn't think he was real, but that was fucking gross. Yeah. No, I think, I think Steve was put off from that movie again by Kyle, would just wouldn't shut up about the she's gone from suck to blow punchline. Oh, <laughs> uh, fucking Kyle. Kyle. I'm glad I picked him as the worst. Me too. Well, watching Return of the Jedi may have been one thing that Steve and Wong were up to, but it wasn't the only thing they were up to, and it wasn't the only thing that they watched. On May 10th, they decided to stay home and watch the finale of one of their favorite television programs, which wrapped up that year. They hadn't watched the whole series. They hadn't been watching it for the last season and a half or so. So they were a little bit confused as to what was going on, but they watched the final episode on May 10th of Laverne and Shirley. Aww. At that point... Shirley had left the show. Cindy Williams had, wasn't there for the last season. And it far more uh, starred uh, Laverne and Squiggy. And uh, Steve, of course, just called it, Oh, I wish to watch the Squiggly program. Yeah. And Steve was a big fan of Squiggy, so he really enjoyed it. And he was also a fan of the, I think it was Shirley's initially love interest, Carmen, who may or may not have been the big ragu. I don't remember if that was he was the guy who called himself that or if that was Laverne's dad. Somebody on that show called themselves the Big Ragu, though. May have been Carmen. Nobody knows for sure. That information is lost to history. But uh, the final episode of the show actually focused mostly on Carmen because they were hoping to give him a spinoff show where he would live in New York with a whole bunch of wacky actors. So at the end of the episode, Carmen went off to live on Broadway and audition for the musical Hair. What? That was how Laverne and Shirley ended. No shit. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. Well, Stephen Wong thought that was weird too, but Steve was really into the idea. 
So after watching the Laverne and Shirley finale, Steve was really into the idea of revisiting the movie Hair, which he loved. There was a movie? Yeah, there was a movie. It came out in 1980, starred Treat Williams. Oh, I was thinking that you were, we were talking about the, the Broadway thing the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, th- that was what Carmen went off to be in the Broadway production of Hair, and then the movie was the movie version of the Broadway. Sorry, play. I'll try and keep up. Thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so Steve really wanted, he's like, oh, yes, I love that movie. We should watch that again. I like the cut of that Treat Williams jib. Yeah, well-named man. His performances are a real treat. Mm. And Wong did not want to watch Hair again. Because after watching it, Steve would just sing all of the songs aloud, misremember the words, and it was just really frustrating for Wong. And Wong was like, Steve, please, please, I don't want to watch Hair again. I, I won't do it. We're not watching it. And Steve was like, oh, right, because you're bald. Probably a very painful experience. I'll take care of that. And so he just, for a week, he kept using his magic to give Wong a full Bon Jovi-style head of hair. And Wong just kept, Steve, I shaved my head. I'm a monk. (laughs) You know that. And Steve's like, oh, well, I guess I'll stop regrowing your hair, but... Can we watch the movie Hair again? And Wong was like, no, why don't we watch a different Treat Williams movie? He's been in other things. And so they decided to go see the Treat Williams movie that had come out that year called The Neapolitan Sting. This was an Italian language film that Treat Williams starred in. And when Wong found that out, he's like, Steve, you know this movie's in Italian. Do you speak Italian? And Steve was like, well, I assume I can. (laughs) And it turned out he couldn't. And that is the Wong doings that Wong was doing in May of 1983. Scusi? It's-a-me? Mario? (laughs) Does Treat Williams speak Italian? Apparently. Dang. I don't know. He's a very talented man. What a man. man. What a man. What a mighty good man. Mighty, mighty good man. Have you seen The Phantom? He has neither a Denzel face or an Arnold body. <laughs> I disagree. And things to do in Denver when you're dead. He was very jacked, so he had kind of an Arnold body in that. <laughs> he may not look like Denzel, but he's a very handsome man. What a man. What a man. What mighty, a mighty, good, mighty, good. mighty, mighty good man. Mm. He knows your name's not Susan. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. Corey, thank you so much. I had a great time. Talking with you exclusively about this comic, as we did for this entire recording. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of ground to cover. I'm glad we got to all of it. So many salad dressings out there. <laughs> In-depth analysis of this comic book, yes. Mm. Doing the work that, uh, frankly, a lot of people are afraid to do. I want to tackle the tough issues like air zambonis. Mm-hmm. Good job. Likewise. If you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically. Can you imagine such a thing? At ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up on the socials media in various places, so you can look for us there. But hey, if you can't find us there, 
there is one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there. We always have been. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? Man, I am finally going to wrap up that tile backsplash I've been working <laughs> on every weekend for a while. Nice. It is going to look so nice. Man, you guys are going to have a spiffy-looking heart when Corey's done with it. Oh, yeah. I think this week I am going to be revisiting the work of some favorites of mine. Really unfortunate past couple of weeks for comic book fans. Mm. We have lost both Neil Adams mm. and George Perez. They're two of my favorite comic book artists. Just looking around the comic book room, there's Superman versus Muhammad Ali, one of my favorite comic books I've ever read. Right under it is copy Escape Man that a listener had sent to us that is signed by Neil Adams. To Hub and Corey, what the shit do you care, pig meat? I lo- I'm looking at it right now, and it warms the cockles of my heart. And then, yeah, looking up on my wall, we've got the first issue of the New Teen Titans. We've spent so much time looking at George Perez's work over the past couple of years, mm. and he really is a remarkable artist. They both were, both men really made such a positive impact on my life. Yeah. It's weird to say about people that I haven't really met. I did briefly meet Neil Adams once, but yeah, just remarkable bodies of work for both of them and uh, real contributions to the world and i hope that they knew that and i'm going to enjoy revisiting some of their work yeah same sad news man it really was for whatever reason the george perez one hit me really hard i know we just covered one of his comics recently and we've covered so many of his comics over the years and they're just so fucking good and really by all accounts really nice man which unfortunately seems like a it's a refreshing rarity, almost, that like somebody who's awesome at something turns out not to be a jerk yeah, in some way. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. But that really does seem to be the case with George Perez, and I think also with Neil Adams. I know less about him. I know he had some very odd theories about things. Planets. but About the fact that I, I, I think I may be getting it wrong, but he believed that the world was hollow and expanding. I didn't look into it too much, but honestly, as far as conspiracy theories go, seems like a pretty benign one, especially by today's standards, and he did so much for artists' rights. I mean, artists are still being horribly mistreated by comic book companies, but it used to be worse, and it would be so much worse without him. And gosh, what an artist, what a talent for both of them. Indeed. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. If you'd like to Leave us a review uh, at a place where a review can be left. I think that would be a nice thing for you to do, and it would mean a lot to me. We've got a Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you donate, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material, and I would appreciate that. So thank you. And until next week, uh... What the shit do you care, pig meat? What the shit do you care, pig meat? Everyone. To Neil and George. To Neil and George. And they know it. two manhattans and a beer on friday night and that is now apparently enough to give me a bad hangover
I bet it would be for me, too. For whatever reason, Manhattans go down real easy for me. They were so good. Even when I'm, like, kind of low tolerance, like, I definitely get drunk, but I get that kind of happy, glib, easygoing drunk. At least that's how it feels in my head. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe outside of my head, it's more of a just, like, <laughs> But in my mind, I'm fucking no coward with that shit. Ah, uh, I don't know who that is. I don't entirely know who he is, but I know he had a smoking jacket, so I assume he was very glib. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. On page six, a glow, a flash, their bodies shimmer into negative images. And then they vanish. Wait, let me say that again. I okay. sounded drunk. Yeah, it did. I wonder why. <laughs> vanish. <laughs> Shit. You listen here, man. It's finished. I tell you. You're going to flash into negative images. And it is finished. 